Thank you for listening to the Redemption Church podcast. For more information about Redemption Church, please visit redemptionokc.com. You can stay up to date on sermons by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. Father, your love is on display in the person of Jesus, your son, whom you sent to be our rescuer and also our king. Father, might you enlighten us this morning, both in our minds and in our hearts, to the beauty of your grace. Father, would your spirit do work in our hearts. Father, if there's anyone here who does not truly understand your grace, God, would you just break through and open the eyes of their heart today that they might be born again, that they might know without a doubt that you love them and that that you care for them and that through Jesus you will make a way for them to have new life and forever life with you. Father, for your glory, for the glory of your Son, the power of your Spirit, we pray it. Amen. Well, if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to the book of 1 Timothy. Uh, we're working through this series called a good, The Good Fight. And, man, we are taking a little bit of time as we walk through the, the first chapter of 1 Timothy because of some meaty stuff and some really good stuff. And last week, we talked about the difference between law and grace, different approaches to salvation, different approaches to the spiritual life, and one by, by means of the law, the other by means of grace. And one of my favorite movies is called Shawshank Redemption. And uh, a little bit of an old one. Some of you may have seen it, but, but it really deals with this idea of redemption and the right approach to redemption and the wrong approach to redemption. And as the main character played by Tim Robbins uh, is, is entering into a prison, uh, he goes through really uh, initially a baptism scene the, the, the picture, the imagery there is a baptism. And then when he leaves the prison, he goes through another, sorry, spoiler alert if you haven't seen it. But when he finally leaves the prison, uh, he goes through another sort of a baptism scene that takes place there. And these two scenes really capture the difference, I think, of what Paul was showing us in, the, in law and grace. In law, the first scene, when Tim Robbins is coming into the prison, um, he, he's, it, it's really this kind of legalistic, pharisaical thing. I mean, He's, he's being imprisoned, right? And so it's kind of going into the prison of religion, religiosity. And uh, he's actually stripped naked. The scene is full of shame. He's hosed down with a fire hose so that it's painful in terms of uh, his experience and what he goes through. And what it's saying is this is the wrong approach to religion. This is a religion that actually condemns, that shames, that imprisons, that traps you. And that really is the approach of law. Then there's another picture of grace that comes a little bit later when he finally leaves the prison. And he leaves and he runs out and he runs out into the open. And as he does, uh, you see him kind of, kind of breaking free. And there's kind of this moment of like shedding the old skin and he drops to his knees and he looks up to the heavens and he raises his arms like this. And there's a gentle mist of rain that's falling on him. And you just see this picture of freedom, of hope, of new life, of something to look forward to. And that's the picture of grace. And those two pictures, I think, are really important. And last week, we looked at, uh, really in the scriptures in 1 Timothy, how these two approaches give us different experiences in terms of our own life. And really, the, the point we were making last week was, the law can get you lost, but grace can get you found. The law can prove you're blind, but grace can make you see. 
that it can actually change your life. And some things are worth fighting for is why Paul, twice in this book, he says, we're called to wage the good warfare. We're, we're called to fight the good fight. And the reason is because grace is something worth fighting for. And it's what Paul has been trying to set us up for. Now, the problem is there's been false teachers. And so as we've looked through this book and, and I encourage you, if you're new to go back and really, what we're gonna say today really builds in the last few weeks. And so you may need to go back and lay some of the groundwork in there. But, but Paul's been talking about false teachers who didn't really hold to the gospel of grace. They tried to approach things wrongly. And so they were actually causing destruction and damage to the church and Paul's interceding in that. And um, he, he says this in verse 15, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. And so in contrast to these false teachers that were going the wrong way, and Paul says earlier, he says, they don't even understand what they're saying and yet they're being confident about the things they're asserting, but they don't really understand. He's saying, this is a trustworthy statement, full, uh, ready for full acceptance. Jesus Christ came to save sinners. Now, Here's what I realize about us. And one of the reasons why we're taking so much, so many weeks kind of walking through this is in our world, we're not quite sure how to divvy up some things doctrinally. We're not quite sure how to parse some things. In fact, we live in a world where the greatest value is total acceptance of anyone based on whatever it is they feel or want to believe. And so in that, Paul, I think, is pushing on us in our culture. There's gonna be some natural push against that because the, the approach that Paul takes says, man, there's false teachers and there's truth and that's which is trustworthy and true that should be trusted and held fast to and fought for. Now, just in case you think, Man, that was the city of Ephesus. They had a pagan goddess named Artemis and they lived kind of in a really radically different world, but we've advanced beyond that and we're much more uh, kind of enlightened as a society. We've gotten much better. Uh, let me show you just a quick slide. Uh, there was a, a tweet that went out a couple weeks ago from a seminary here in America. And this is what they had to say. Today in chapel, we confessed to plants. Together, we held our grief, joy, regret, hope, guilt, and sorrow in prayer offering them to the beings who sustain us, but whose gift we too often fail to honor. Who do, what do you confess to the plants in your life? See, that's, that's just a pagan idea, very similar actually to what the pagans in Ephesus believed with the worship of the goddess Artemis. There's an approach where they're coming and confessing. Now see, here's the danger. They're dressing up kind of a false idea, but with Christian language. You notice that they're using very much Christian language. We're gonna confess, we're gonna repent, we're gonna seek, seek reconciliation with someone. It's using the language of redemption, but it's applying it to an entirely different scenario than Christianity applies it to. That's not Christ Jesus came to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. It's a different approach altogether. Now, part of the foolishness in that isn't the fact that, that we have done the earth harm, because that's very true. Like ecologically, we are destroying our planet and we're doing all kinds of, all kinds of harm in that, which actually solidifies the point that that, that that confession really isn't very effective because we have the ability to do damage to this. Jesus himself was victorious over sin and death. Nothing could hold him back. So he has power that a plant never has. So why do I say all that? Sometimes I think we think that maybe we've moved past that and we don't really need to have strong doctrinal understanding and grounding to understand the things which we really believe. But we really need to do that even in our day. And I think especially in our day as the waters get muddier and muddier and yet we kind of take Christian language and baptize it and apply it to all kinds of other scenarios, but not in the way that the scriptures do. 
So where are we gonna go today? Paul says, guard the truth that's been entrusted to us. So I want us to take a look at church history. We're gonna go back and look at just kind of a historical sweep of three big events that happened in the life of the church. And hopefully this is gonna deepen your understanding of the gospel and deepen your understanding of grace and make you fall more in love with the grace of God than ever before. Um, Christianity, let me say this, Christianity is more than thinking, but it's never less than thinking. So you're gonna have to put your, you have to put your thinking cap on today. You're gonna have to dig deep and kind of dive in. We're gonna move pretty quickly, but I want you to understand that moving toward maturity as a Christian includes having a deepening understanding of doctrine. It includes a deeper appreciation of the gospel. It, it, it includes a deeper love of God's grace. And so as we move towards maturity, those are things that I want to be present for us. And so I wanna introduce you to three phrases from church history today that, that we really see as, as essential or important for us in the life of our church. Uh, it's grace alone, Christ alone, and faith alone. And we're gonna look at three heroes from the life of the church. And really, uh, this will greatly inform our, our understanding of grace. And I, I want you to understand that the things which we believe didn't really happen in a vacuum. Like I'm not up here just making stuff up going, hey, let me tell you my best thoughts. That's not really what we do. What we do is we, we believe that God has revealed himself primarily in the person of Jesus, uh, but also through nature and other things, but also in his word. And so we come to his word and we understand that, that, that this points us to the truth and we depend on it and we bank on it and we, we believe in it and we teach it. So we're teaching something that's coming out of a history, not just something that we're making up on our own. Now, we're going to look at three guys to really uh, solidify this point. We're going to look at Augustine, we're going to look at Anselm, and we're going to look at Martin Luther. And uh, if you don't know those names, I want you to know those names. It'd be like saying, I'm an Oklahoma State football fan, but I don't recognize the name Barry Sanders. Or I'm, a, I'm an OU football fan, and I don't know Leroy Selman and the Selman brothers. Like, these are guys you should know because, man, we're, we inherit literally the history that they have brought to us. And in fact, um, more than that, um, we, we stand on their shoulders in terms of our faith, but these are essential building blocks for you to understand God's grace. And doctrine for us, I need you to understand, is an anchor in the winds that toss people around back and forth. This is the anchor that solidifies really what it is that we believe and what it is that we hold on to. And defining our doctrine is not, is not something that's confining of us. It's actually setting up guardrails so that we stay on the right path, the path to joy and freedom. And so doctrine is keeping us on the road that moves us towards joy and freedom. And that's what, we, what I hope that you see today. Um, C.S. Lewis said, there's two ways to get out of your own time and to consider, uh, to be able to kind of see the way in which your, your own era or your own day is operating. He says, one is you can get in a time machine and move to the future and see what it is that, that the way in which we were thinking affects our world. That's not really an option for us, Right. I mean, as much as Back to the Future was a great story, like we don't know how to do that yet, but we can get in a time machine and go back and look at the way these things have worked themselves out over history. And that will shed light into our own day and the way in which we believe things as well. So let's look at the first. Let's look at grace alone. And we're gonna look at a leader named Augustine. This was an African man, lived in North Africa. And uh, really 354 to 430 AD, the big ideas we're gonna look at that Augustine solidified us uh, in terms of doctrine. If you wanna take, if you're a note taker, now's time to take notes. Uh, really were total depravity and sovereign grace. Augustine's view of sin uh, really sh shadowed or depicted our, our neediness, our, our inability to, to handle life on our own 
and God's grace that came to us and really showed us the right way. Now, Augustine's life, I, man, I wish I had time to do this. Uh, this week as I was studying, I was going back and I kept getting sucked into all this stuff and their stories. And these guys' stories are so amazing. Augustine grew up in a home that was sort of divided. He had a father who was, had, had run away for, or did not believe in Christianity and would not and refused to put his faith in Christ. Had a mother who, who believed passionately in Christianity and prayed and sought and ran after Augustine and tried to see him nurtured in the faith. Augustine, though, really was not interested as a young man. As a young man, uh, he was way more interested in evil. He was way more interested in, in having fun, sort of sowing his wild oats. He, was, uh, he talks a lot in his book, Confessions, about his kind of enslavement to sex and, and really had a, a strong sex drive that he enjoyed uh, putting on full display. And in that story, uh, Augustine, in fact, in his Confessions, one of the things he says is, I, I realized at some point that I liked doing wrong for the sake of doing something wrong, not just because it got me what I wanted. But there was something in me that actually found joy in doing evil because he recognized that sometimes breaking the rules felt good because he felt like he got away with something. This is the kind of man that Augustine was. Augustine then uh, actually had been a poor student, but went and all of a sudden got excited about school. And he started pouring himself all into school. Uh, was interested in success with influence, became an orator, and, and really began rising up through the ranks, became, became elevated. Uh, his mom was just in turmoil because she saw this guy whose heart was far from the Lord, running away from the Lord and, and starting to become a success. And so she kept pursuing him. In fact, one time uh, he got a, a new post in the city and she went there and said, well, I'm gonna go try to be there and be a good influence to him. He was offered another job in Rome. Um, she was worried about him going off to this decadent place. And so she made him promise that he would stay there. And he said, sure, I will, mom. You just go to sleep and rest easy. And as soon as she went to sleep, he got on a boat and took off. And this is Augustine had a concubine that he fell in love with and had a 13-year relationship and had a son with her. But, but God broke through and got a hold of his heart and showed him what grace was really all about through a man uh, who was a preacher and a pastor named Ambrose. And Augustine became a leader in the church. In fact, became known as the doctor of grace. It was, was his officially, or kind of the, the title that, that he began following with. Now, do you know how doctrine ultimately gets determined, typically gets determined in the life of a church? or life or the history of the church. Doctrine typically happens because some false idea gets raised up and, and all of a sudden the church goes, whoa, that's not right. And so they begin to delineate the ways in which that isn't right. And that tells us in some ways, this is a guardrail. Someone stepped off the road. They started veering off a path that was gonna lead us in a destructive way. And the church says, we need to set up a doctrinal standard that keeps people from getting off course so that they get in trouble. And so uh, Augustine lived in one of those times. There's a man named Pelagius. And Pelagius became, rose up as a, as a teacher in Britain. And one of the things Pelagius began to teach was that God would not ask us to do something which we're, not capable, which we're incapable of doing. Um, you probably heard this before, like God would never give you more than you can handle, stuff like that. Um, you, these ideas creep into our culture too, right? Um, but, but Pelagius had this idea that God wouldn't ask you to obey a law that you weren't strong enough to do. God would never said, hey, I need you to go do something it's gonna be impossible for you to do. And so Pelagius had this real optimistic view of human nature that we all basically are neutral. And if we just make wise choices, if we handle life well, if we do all the right things, we're gonna move ourselves up the ladder. We'll engage in a, in a healthy spiritual direction. And you can actually kind of pull yourself up by the bootstraps and do very well if you're just disciplined in your approach to these things. Now, Augustine, imagine how that kind of a message would hit someone like Augustine with his life experience and where he came from. 
Um, for him, that was a damning message. For him, that was a message that had no hope. For him, that was a message that had no salvation offered whatsoever. And so Augustine's views um, really were, were different than that. They were shaped largely by his Bible study, his study of the Psalms, his study of the book of Romans. Uh, in fact, one verse, 1 Corinthians 4, 7 says, it was, was a seminal verse that really shifted his view. And in this verse says, for who, who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, then why do you boast as though you did not receive it? Let me explain what he's saying or what, what Paul is saying in that verse and what it meant to Augustine. Augustine heard that and said, oh, so it's not just up to, I'm, I've got everything figured out on my own and I have to do everything right. He's saying, anything I do that's good came as a gift from God. Anything that I do right is something I received from God. Any grace that's mine is something I was given to me by God. It's not something that I've earned. It's something that I was given as a gift. And so Augustine began to see that and see God's sovereign at work. And so Augustine taught that humans, that we're entirely dependent upon God, that we can't do anything in and of ourselves, that we're not just kind of free beings making good or poor choices determining life, but that ultimately everything we do is connected to the God of the universe. And so uh, Augustine ties that back to uh, really this doctrine we call total depravity. Uh, look with me at Romans 5.12. Uh, we see this in Romans, it says, uh, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, who's that? Adam. So Adam, Adam was, was the first man, uh, was in the garden, he sinned. It says, just as though he came, sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. So death spread to all men because all sinned. So through Adam, Somehow sin was passed down to us. Sin is not just individual acts where we make poor choices, but sin actually infects us. Sin actually affects our whole nature. That somehow our hearts were changed and we became broken by, by sin and by the effect of sin in the world. And so it, when, he, when we talk about the doctrine of total depravity, we're not saying that we are as bad as we could be. We're just saying that all of our lives have been touched by, by this brokenness that came into the world through sin. And so as a... As a result of that, we're not able to do anything good in and of ourselves, um, the, anything that's ultimately good, but ultimately we're dependent upon the Lord. So Augustine maintains that though we're separated from God, we're, we become burdened with guilt, uh, we're under the dominion of sin, and so we cannot do that which is truly good in the sight of God. That's a problem, right? So what do we need for that? We need the other side. We need, we need God's sovereign grace to break through. Augustine says it this way, or someone said of Augustine, uh, Augustine's view, explained it this way. Grace is imparted to sinful man, not because he, he believes, but in order that he may believe, for faith itself is a gift from God. Meaning that you are not gonna stumble around in the darkness and find your way to God. But if God didn't break through, if God didn't do work in your heart, if God didn't initiate by his grace something in us, we were never gonna come to a place of truly seeing God for who he was. We needed God to make the first move. We needed to get God to initiate by his grace and do something in us in order to, to truly believe. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, uh, we see this idea as well. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that's not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we might walk in them. Do you see how that works? It's a gift. Grace is a gift. It's nothing we, we discerned on our own, but it's something that God revealed to us and he broke through. Not that he violated our will, but that he changed our will so that we truly believed and wanted to understand who it is that God really um, 
or the grace, the grace of God and what it really is. Let me give you a couple other quotes that kind of give you a picture of what this is for this man, Augustine. Augustine said, my whole hope is in your exceeding great mercy and that alone. Give what you command and command what you will. So Augustine starts off, he says, my, my hope's in the mercy of God completely. And he says, Lord, he says, give me whatever it is you command, meaning you work in my will to make me do it. And then you can command me to do whatever I do and I will do it. But if you reverse that and say, command what you will and I will do it on my own, then Augustine says, man, I'm in trouble. Like if you just throw commands at me, if you throw the law at me and then say, good luck, you're on your own, pull yourself up and go do good. Augustine says, I have no hope. My whole hope is in the mercy of God that actually is at work in me by his grace to do something good. Let me give you another one. Augustine says, God, this is a prayer. See in me your work, not mine. For if you see mine, you will condemn it. If you see your own, you will crown it. For whatever good, whatever good works are mine are from you. Uh, it sounds very much like Ephesians, right? We are his workmanship to, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he prepared beforehand that we might walk in them. Augustine's echoing scripture here. And one more. The house of my soul is too narrow for you to come in, into me. Let it be enlarged by you, for it's in, it is in ruins. Restore it. And I love the heart of that, where Augustine comes and there's just, and so there's, there's a music to what Augustine says that's kind of the music of the gospel that, that I hope you begin to hear, that he comes and just says, look, I'm needy. I can't do this on my own. I'm not enough. My, my soul is too too narrow and too closed off. I need you to break in and, and to do something and enlarge it so that you take over my life. Now, let me give you a practical way this works, works its way out. If you ever had a, a friend or family member that began to make bad choices and they began to run away from the Lord and you began to see them make immoral choices or choices that you knew were gonna get them in trouble and you were beginning to see the consequences of things that they were doing. And so you just said, man, I need to pray for my friend. What kind of things did you pray for your friend? Do you pray like help them figure it out on their own and you know, get a little stronger and just do everything right? No, typically what we pray when we get in those things is, God, would you break through to my friend, break through to my son, break through to my daughter? Would you do something to help them wake them up, help them see what's going on, help them see the reality of everything they're doing, help change them, break in and, and turn the course of their life and move them in a new direction? You're really, you're, you're, you're kind of praying an echo of what Augustine was saying, which is, man, if it's all up to them, I'm in trouble. If it's all up to they're making good choices, we're, we're kind of hosed here because they're making all bad choices. God, would you somehow break in and change the course and alter the course that they might move in a new direction? And that's a trust in the sovereign grace of God to do work within sinful people. So that's the, the first area I think that you see. It. Augustine's view of grace really defined what grace looked like in the life of the church. Pelagius was actually excommunicated and sent out and uh, the church was said, this is a guardrail, do not go over there because that'll take you off the path of grace and joy and freedom and life and get you into trouble. So let's look at the second one. Yeah, another key moment in the good fight for grace. Let's look at Anselm in Christ alone. Anselm's big idea Anselm came about 600 years after Augustine, so uh, right around uh, the turn of the millennium. And uh, Anselm's big idea was atonement. It dealt with, he dealt with substitutionary atonement. Now, here's what had happened kind of in that, in, in that time of transition from Augustine up through, uh, 
through the time when Anselm showed up. One, the church had really defined who Christ was, how it was that he was fully God and fully man, understood the Trinity and the Holy Spirit, and all, the, all these doctrines that began to be uh, delineated. And then that kind of brought us to some other questions. So Anselm arrives at a time when people are asking questions like this. Couldn't God have saved man merely by an act of his omnipotence and just said, you're saved? Like, I mean, if you're God, why can't, he, why can't God just go, you know what? You guys have really messed this thing up, but you're good. Come on in and move a different direction. Another question they were asking, um, if, if God being merciful, why could not, he not simply have pardoned the sin of man without demanding any kind of punishment or satisfaction? Why couldn't God just kind of like a, like a government agent just kind of say, you know, you did it, you're wrong, you deserve to be punished, but I just pardon you and wipe the slate clean. Why did he actually have to execute justice? Why did Jesus have to die? Meaning if there was a mediation that was really necessary, why did Jesus have to go? Like if, if why did God have to send his only begotten son to die in order to bring about our salvation? I mean, if something had to die, like why couldn't you just go send like, you know, a crippled rabbit and like, hey, throw that rabbit in there and make that, make that the substitute and say everything's okay. There's a problem with that. And, and here Anselm's really wrestling with why is it that Jesus had to die? And so Anselm uh, wrote, wrote a book called Curdeus. Uh, I forgot what it was. It means, what's, uh, means why the God-man. Uh, Curdeus homo, meaning uh, why the God-man. Why, why did the God-man have to come? Meaning Jesus was, Jesus was uh, what, what theologians oftentimes call the God-man, meaning he was fully God. He was a divine being. He was also fully man. He was human. And so he, he was a God-man. Why did we have to have a God-man who died in our place was the question that he really answered. Uh, John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Yeah, you quoted it. Uh, you've probably heard it quoted dozens of times. You've seen it at football games. Uh, it's one of those verses that, that oftentimes we know in our culture. But there's some things that's easy to miss. One, Jesus was, was born. He was begotten. He was not created. Jesus has existed eternally. And so God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit have existed for all time. And Jesus at some point became one of us. He was begotten. He was born into the world. And so it says, um, for God so loved the world, so is driven by the mercy of God. God's mercy, his attribute of mercy compelled him to act because we were lost. And the way in which he acted was he gave his only son, Jesus who existed, God gave him up that he might die for us so that we might live with him. And Anselm's understanding the necessity of the atoning sacrifice of Jesus had to be grounded in God's divine nature. And so two things you need to understand that we, that we see here. One, you see God, that God is a God of mercy because he didn't leave us on, us on our own, but he worked to bring about our salvation. You also see that God is a God of justice. And being a God of justice, he couldn't simply look the other way on evil, but he had to punish evil. He couldn't simply let it go. He couldn't pardon. He couldn't overlook. He couldn't just kind of give a carte blanche. Everyone gets a, gets a do-over. He had to actually deal with it which is why in 1 Timothy, and we'll look at this next week, 1 Timothy 2, 5, and 6 says, for there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. God and man, there's a mediator that fell between them to bring the two of them back together. Who was that? It was the man Christ Jesus. 
Christ is a title. It means the Messiah. He's the anointed divine one that was given for the reconciliation or the salvation of others. So Jesus Christ, Jesus was the man. Christ was the one that sets him apart as God. He was the God-man who could mediate between God and man and bring us together. How did he do it? He gave himself as a what? Ransom. What's a ransom? It's a payment. Jesus gave himself as a payment in order to win us back to God and bring us into right relationship with him. Um, say this with me, Jesus in my place. See, that's, that is the idea of, of Anselm's idea, or the, the doctrine taught us of substitutionary atonement. That someone, Jesus had to substitute himself as a payment for the sin which we did. And so the punishment which we had earned, Jesus took upon himself and substituted himself in that place. Uh, students, um, what do you do when you have a substitute teacher besides act up? And, and try not to get in trouble. Uh, what, what is a substitute teacher? It means that your, your, your normal teacher is unavailable and can't fill that role for the day. And so that teacher's not present. They send a substitute teacher in who fills that spot, right? It's the same idea here, which is you could not fill the role of earning your own salvation. And so Jesus said, you know what? I will substitute myself into the hole or the gap that they could not fill for themselves. And I will put myself in that role in order to accomplish what they could not do for themselves. Jesus substituted himself for us. Now, why is it important that, that, uh, that Jesus died? Let me give you three things that I think are important in our understanding of this. One, it had to be a man to stand in our place. You couldn't substitute a plant for a man. You couldn't substitute a rabbit for a man. You couldn't substitute anything else for a man. In order to, for someone to truly substitute themselves for one of us, it had to be another man. And so that was essential. Secondly, it had to be a perfect man in order to be an acceptable sacrifice. So, I mean, if, if me as a sinful man gets substituted with another sinful man, there wasn't really any improvement there, was there? But if you have a sinful man and a perfect man substitutes for him, then we've made a, a, a remarkable improvement. And then thirdly, it had to be, it didn't just have to be a man or a perfect man, it had to be an infinite man. In order, for that, in order for that substitution to apply, not just one for one, one person for another person, but for that substitution to apply for all humanity and all mankind, it had to be an infinite man, meaning a divine being. It had to be a God man. There had to be someone who was infinite in and of himself so that his substitution could be applied to all people and be sufficient to pay the debt for everyone. Do you see how that works? See how essential that is? It's the doctrine we call substitutionary atonement. Jesus substituted himself and he gave his life as an atonement, a payment in order to accomplish our rescue so that we could truly have <clears throat> experienced salvation. I want you to listen to this. Uh, this is Anselm talking about, um, and one of the things I love about these old, uh, these old theologians, I mean, if I could get you just to read a little bit of church history, like if you read a 10th of the things you read on Facebook, if you just apply a tenth of that to church history, I promise you it'd be reward, rewarding. But I love the way that these deep theological thinkers are so passionate and overwhelmed with the beauty of what it is they're doing, that it's not dry, it's not cold, but, and it stirs your heart. And here's Anselm really talking about uh, this death of Christ, the God-man. He says, there's something mysterious in this objection, abjection. Oh, hidden strength, a man hangs on a cross and lifts the load of eternal death from the human race. A man nailed to wood looses the bonds of everlasting death that hold fast the world. Oh, hidden power. A man condemned with thieves saves men condemned with devils. A man stretched out on the gibbet 
draws all men to himself. A man substitutes to the, I'm sorry, a man submits to the death of the body and destroys the death of souls. See a Christian soul. Here's the strength of your salvation. Here is the cause of your freedom. Here is the price of your redemption. You were a bond slave and by this man, you are free. By him, you are brought back from exile. Lost, you are restored. Dead, you are raised up. Friends, Christ was our ransom. Jesus in my place changes everything. Means that everything that was going wrong can be undone by the grace of Jesus. And I love the picture that Anselm paints of that. So let's move to the last one. Let's look at Luther. Um, here, as we talk about Luther, we're gonna be talking about faith alone. And man, I could preach a series on this right here. So hang with me. We're gonna lean in here. Um, Luther really had an interesting life as well. Grew up as a very religious man in many ways and became a monk, but was very much uh, just in torment and turmoil over his spiritual life and where he was. He's a man who lived with a lot of shame, a man who lived with a lot of grief, a man who lived with a lot of guilt, never felt like he measured up. And in fact, they kind of joked that he'd go into confession and priests would be like, dude, stop. Just go. Like, we're tired of listening to you. But he, he, was, he was bottled up with his own kind of brokenness and everything that's going on there. But in Luther's estimation, uh, really through reading of the Psalms, reading the books of Romans, interestingly enough, reading uh, the writings of Augustine, uh, the light bulbs began to click and he began to ask questions about what's wrong in his estimation. The church at the time had lost its way and a church that was really emphasizing a pathway to salvation that had been... Uh, <clears throat> a pathway to salvation that really begins with one's own ability and then continues through participation in the structure of the church's programs and religiosity, uh, he began to push back against that and really wrestled with his faith. In that time, the church was um, selling indulgences. It was involved in all kinds of penance. There were all kinds of other things. There was a lot of corruption. There was a lot of brokenness that, that took place. And Luther kind of had enough and began to raise his arms going, this can't be what it really is. And so Luther began studying the scriptures and pouring himself in. And there was a verse that became significant for him, Romans 1, 17. It says, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Uh, Luther tormented himself over this verse because he really, early on, he understood when he, when he heard that phrase, the righteousness of God, he understood it to mean the righteous wrath of God towards humanity and their sinfulness. So when he heard the righteousness of God, everything in him went, oh no, I could never endure the righteousness of God. If God poured out his righteousness and his anger and his wrath on me for everything I've done wrong, then I would just be crushed. And so he lived kind of in this crushed state of shame, but he gained a clearer understanding and God began to work through this idea of grace. And he began to understand that the phrase later became understood, not the righteousness with which God punishes sinners, but the righteousness which God gives to sinners, that he blesses sinners with the righteousness of Jesus. So it's not actually your righteousness, but it's the righteousness that Jesus has earned for you that he applies to you. Romans 5 says it this way. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So we're justified, meaning we no longer have to feel shame. 
but we're actually justified before God, not because we've become morally perfect, not because we've done everything right, not because we've worked our way up, but we've been declared righteous and we've been justified by God simply by faith. The righteousness of God is not just us enduring his punishment, but the righteousness of God is an imputed righteousness. Uh, what we, theological terms, we talk about an alien righteousness, which sounds really creepy and weird in, in a world uh, kind of with a lot of sci-fi films. But in that day, what he meant by an alien righteousness was something from outside of yourself, meaning you're not saved by your own righteousness and your own goodness, but you need someone else's righteousness to be applied to you like a robe or a cloak that you put over everything in your own life meaning you can't save yourself. If your salvation is up to the purity of your heart, if your salvation is up to your moral obedience, if your salvation is up to your religious um, perfection, then you're in a world of hurt. But if your salvation is by faith alone in what Christ has done for you, then that changes everything. And that's what Luther understood. He says it this way, As a monk, I led an irreproachable life. Nevertheless, I felt like I was a sinner before God. My conscience was restless and I could not depend on God being propitiated by my satisfaction. What he means by that is, it's a big term there. He says, I could never count on God being satisfied with my goodness. I I didn't ever feel like I could live up to the measure of being good enough that God would look upon me with favor. Not only did I not love that God, I actually hated the righteous God who punished the sinners. There was a furious battle raging within my conscience. And meanwhile, I was knocking at the door of this particular Pauline passage, earnestly seeking to know the mind of the great apostle. He's saying, all this battle was going on. At the same time, I'm reading Romans and I'm like, I'm begging God to make this, the truth of the scripture somehow enlighten me so I understand what's really going on. He says, day and night, I tried to meditate upon the significance of these words. The righteousness of God is revealed in it. As it was written, the righteous shall live by faith. Then, finally, he says, God had mercy on me, and I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that gift of God which, by, uh, by which a righteous man lives, namely faith, and that this sentence, the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel, is passive, indicating that the merciful God justifies us by faith, and the righteous shall live by faith. Now, Now I felt as though I'd been reborn altogether and had entered into paradise. Heavy stuff. Here's what he's saying. When he says that I understood that uh, that the term there was passive, what he means is this was not something, I did not work my way into my my own action, my own activity. I did not work my way into good standing with God. It's passive, meaning I received it. What do you do with a gift? Someone comes and they bring it and they, hand it to you and you simply just take it, right? Like you didn't do anything for it. You just receive it. And he's saying that by the gift of my faith was something that was received. Christ's righteousness was something that was received. Now, why does that make a difference for us? I think it makes all the difference for us because ultimately Christ's righteousness becomes our righteousness, which means when God looks upon you, he doesn't see your brokenness. He doesn't see the the, the darkness of your heart and your soul. But if you put your faith in Christ, God looks at you and he sees the beauty of his son. He sees the goodness of the savior. He sees the righteousness with Christ, which Christ earned on your behalf. It's Jesus in my place. He looks upon you and he says, man, look at the beauty of Jesus that's been applied to that one 
who has put his faith in him. Calvin, riffing on some of Luther's stuff, says this, people are willing to say that Christ's work is to save people, but they're reluctant to believe that salvation actually belongs to sinners. We are liable to focus on our own unworthiness, and as we focus on this, our trust in God collapses. So the more a person is burdened by his own sins, the more he should confidently turn to Christ. What's Calvin saying? Friends, some of you need to hear this word. Some of you need to understand what Calvin's saying right here. He's saying that sometimes in the weakness of our faith, we don't truly depend on the doctrine of God's grace. We don't truly lean and put all of our weight on it. And so what happens is we, we, we kind of understand what Paul says when he says Christ Jesus came to save sinners, but you're not really sure that he can save you and the sinner that you are. And so there's a part of your heart that still feels like I need to feel shame and I need to feel embarrassment and I need to feel distance from God because of everything that's there. And what, what Christ is saying is, no, I paid for that. I covered that. You're good. You can depend on me and you can count on me. And, but here's what, you notice what he says, that we're liable to focus on our own unworthiness. And as we focus on our own unworthiness, then our faith in God collapses. Friends, that's part of the spiritual life. That's what it means to trust the doctrine of the church that's been handed down to us. You need to have an understanding of God's grace. This is why we spent an afternoon or a morning talking about grace alone, Christ alone, faith alone. Because whenever you lose sight of who God is and you begin to look at your own, your own junk, you begin to look at your own sin, whenever you do something on Saturday night that makes you not want to come to church on Sunday, whenever you say something to your spouse that you know dishonors him or her and dishonors the Lord, whenever you parent in a way that you're embarrassed about, whenever you snap in a, in a grocery store and you know, man, that's not the way I should have responded, when you have all those things, it's easy to get fixated on our own unworthiness. And what Calvin's reminding us that Jesus died for that. So shift your eyes from your own unworthiness to God and trust him. Trust his goodness, trust his grace, Count on it, depend on it, bank on it. Let it stir your heart so that you are strengthened by it. And that ultimately is what God's grace ought to do for us. Um, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ died to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Father, would you make us to believe that's true? Would you cause us to depend on it and to trust your grace? Father, for there, if there's any here who feel the shame, Father, of their, of their way, Lord, would they look to you? Would they have their heart changed? Would you breathe life into their soul that they might rest in your grace and your goodness, that they might trust that Jesus stood in their place? that they might no longer cling, cling to their false ways, but that they would allow the truth of your word to be guardrails that keep them on a path toward joy, towards freedom, towards life. God, would you help us to love your grace evermore? Father, we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Mm-hmm.